Ephesians chapter 2 is a passage that is very precious to me. And the verse I want to impress upon you today is verse 10. We are God's workmanship. Verse 1 says, you were. Verse 3 towards the end says, we were. You are. This is a passage of scripture that captures the transformation that God brings into our lives by grace through faith alone. It is a transformation that I would argue many of us undervalue. It really is this. It is the story of God's intervention into your life. It is not the result of your invitation to God. It is the result of God's intervention into your life by grace through faith. Intervention, I looked this word up in my computer. Intervention is the interference of one state or individual in the affairs of another. Okay, intervention is the interference of one state or person in the affairs of another. At the human level, in the context of groups of families and friends, I've dealt with people who have decided to rescue someone from a lifestyle, from a pattern of destruction, because the object of their concern was unwilling or unable to rescue themselves. And so people organize in the context of addictions and abuses and intervention. What's the purpose of an intervention? Enough people show up that they can overwhelm all of the power of the individual being confronted aim of the intervention to rescue them from self-destructive patterns that they have been unable to rescue themselves from. Intervention is a rescue prompted by a deeper love than that possessed by those who tolerate, aid, and abet behavior that is in fact destructive. People that intervene love. They get involved. They confront. They make a difference. I thank God that based upon his amazing, lavish love for us, he intervened in our lives. He interrupted our lives. I think the best example of intervention in Scripture is the Apostle Paul. He was not seeking God. He was not interested in God. He was interested in self-promotion, personal change, transformation, self-righteousness. And one day God stopped him dead in his tracks. And Paul died, but was made alive in Christ. Not because he sought God, but because God intervened into his life and did for Paul what Paul could not do and rescued him from a path of self-destruction and changed his life forever. This passage, uh, verse 10, I'm going to put it in context for you this morning and then I hope that this verse rests upon your heart as a, as a, a reassurance of a restatement of God's amazing love for you. That is what Ephesians is all about. Grace lavished on the church. So I take this one verse as a means of encouragement, but I have to set it in context through the sermon so that at the end we can say, this is what God did for us. It is a powerful, powerful picture of intervention. Let's look first of all in verses 1 through 3 at the objects of God's active intervention. Who is it that God is seeking? Who is it that he came to rescue, to deliver from self-destructive patterns of behavior? 
Verse 1 gives us the description. It says, as for you, that is people that are now, verse 1 of chapter 1, elected in the body of Christ. That's who they are. They have a, a new identity. They have been drawn out of being Roman citizens into being citizens of the kingdom of God. Why? Because God moved into their life. What were they like? What were you, and here's what I'd like you to ask, what was I like before the grace of God quickened my heart and gave me a capacity to trust and love and confess and experience regeneration and forgiveness? What was I like? Here's the way Paul describes us. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I don't know if you've ever meditated on that statement. But it is indeed powerful. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. My experience with dead corpses is that they are unresponsive, unable, unwilling to do anything, let alone something good. And God says this. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, my personal experience is this. I don't talk to corpses at funerals. Okay? I know people do, and I understand why it happens. I don't do it. I remember 19 years ago, 20 years ago, I was at a uh, funeral. The guy that died was a biker, and he had friends in his sphere of influence that were in a group called the Pagans out of the Bronx chapter in New York City. They came out here to do a funeral. I rode with them on the back of one of their bikes, looking like a completely preppy individual in my penny loafers back then. It was an astonishing day, but I will never forget when we got graveside, top of a hill. I didn't know this, but all Harley people want their bike to break at the top of a hill because then you can roll down to get where you're going. These men, okay, that scared me looking at them, were talking to this grave. This is two weeks past. Talking to this grave as if... Some of them weeping. I was astonished. And I thought it odd. Why would you talk to a grave? Why would you communicate with a corpse? The corpse is unresponsive, unable to interact. And God says, you and I, in our trespasses and sins, were dead. He goes on to say, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them. And this, this phrase, all of us, what is Paul doing? Paul is wrapping himself into this discussion. He is identifying himself with the fallenness of humanity. He knew that when God confronted him, he was dead and unresponsive until God struck him with the glory of Christ and changed his heart and gave him a capacity to do something that he had no interest in in and of himself. I believe verses 2 to 3 go on to say something like this. You and I were not only dead in our sins, but we were also active in our rebellion. Okay, we pursued a path of seeking to find happiness apart from God. You followed. You were under the influence, Paul goes on to say, of a rebel leader. And you willingly followed him in the satisfaction of selfish pursuits and personal desires. The result of that is this, verse 3, second half of the verse. He says, like the rest, we were, okay, so speaking of their past life, we were by nature objects under or of wrath. 
That's a powerful statement. If I stopped there this morning, would you go out of here encouraged? Okay, those first three verses are a rough ride through deep theology. They go after the doctrine of human depravity, of how truly broken we are and of how truly lost we are and of how truly broken our will is so broken that apart from the aid of God, it will not respond and in fact is unable to, dead in sin. On the other side, we are not only dead in our sins, ignoring God, we are active in our pursuit of rebellion against God. That's the truth of the gospel. Not that I do some things wrong. No, I actively pursue a self-centered, self-pleasing life with utter disregard for God, and Satan leads in that charge. And here's what I believe. I believe in a relationship to the gospel that we often want to give ourselves credit for things that we did not do. I believe we fail to understand how deeply depraved we are, and therefore we believe that our decision is what caused God to save us. Okay, I think Paul's saying something different here. I think he's saying you are so lost and so under the power and sway of that apart from the intervention of God, you would not have responded and in fact were unable. The depth of my depravity. Now what happens? If I underestimate the depth of my depravity, that I am captured in sin, under the power and sway of the evil one, the ruler and prince of this world, if I underestimate that, how do I experience my Christian life? Okay, here's what I think happens. I believe that when we underestimate the depth of our sinfulness, we fail to appreciate the strength of God's gracious intervention in our lives. We want to take credit for something in regards to our salvation. You know what God seeks to do? God seeks to strip away from you all credit and all merit so that it is all of grace, undeserved favor, poured out on a rebellious heart, changed by the grace of God. The result of thinking that we get there by our effort is this. We become religious people rather than amazed people. Do you understand? Instead of being awed by the grace of God, instead of being stunned by the fact that God brought about from me a decision that I did not want to make, we take credit for the decision and simply call other people to make a decision. Pray a prayer and God will change your life apart from the work of God. Okay? My experience has been this. And I believe that what will be born out in the rest of this text is that people who understand how deeply depraved they were and how deeply sinful they were and cried out to God saying, God, please, in your mercy, change my heart. And they experienced that change. They live in all of God's grace. They live stunned, amazed. That's why we... Here's what's amazing to me. The most famous song amongst biblical Christians is Amazing Grace, right? And amongst pagans, it's their favorite song. Why? Because it is the song that they've always wanted to hear. It says what they know they really need when they're being honest with themselves. The objects of God's divine intervention that's borne out in this text are dead, unresponsive, active rebels who are under the wrath of God, which is to say the wages of our sin, Romans 6.23 says, is death. That's me. That's you. And what Paul does is he wraps himself into the midst of this discussion so that there is no mistaking that he identifies with the fallenness of the people to whom he shares the gospel. That's the objects of God's gracious, active intervention. What is the nature of God's intervention? Verse 5, going down through verse 8. And we'll come back to verse 4 in a moment. 
And I'll, I'll read for just to set context. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. He, this is resurrection. This is birth terminology. Okay? He made us alive with Christ, even when we were what? Dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What is the nature of this intervention? I think the first thing that you have to acknowledge from verses 4 and 5 is that it is the work of God. God made us alive. If you have a heart for God, if you had love for God, if you have desire for God, God has made you alive. Okay, it is his work that I want to describe as a, a vigorous work. It's like birthing. Okay, I remember being in the birthing room the first time around. Okay, remember more from that time than I do the second and third time. In spite of the fact that at the end of the first time I basically passed out almost. Praise God for smelling salts. Okay, they're a beautiful thing. Rescue you from embarrassment. My, my memory is this. That the birthing process is radical. It's vigorous. It takes energy. Okay? When the doctor says to push, I remember my wife pushing. I was like, wow. Okay? I was like, whoa, she's serious about this. Okay? It's, it's vigorous. When God intervenes in your life with the gospel of grace, what is it? It is a vigorous intervention. It's not God politely knocking at the door. He doesn't. He comes to take you. He comes to receive you. He comes to change you. Notice the words in verse 5. You are made alive. And in verse 6, you are raised up with Christ. At the resurrection of Christ, what happened? The ground shook. Tombs were opened. When God saved you, He raised you from the dead. That's what God did. A vigorous intervention in which He is responsible for initiative. What does Paul say in verse 5? It is by grace you have been saved. What a salvation in context. Beginning of verse 5, it is being made alive. It's coming awake. It's seeing what you've never seen. It's hearing like you've never heard. And that is the grace of God. An intervention that he initiates. And as you read through the scriptures, here's what you will find. In the Garden of Eden, the first intervention. Who seeks who? God seeks Adam and Eve. God comes, what do Adam and Eve do? They do what sinners do. They do what people under the wrath of God do. They hide themselves. And God seeks. God graciously pursues and seeks. With Saul of Tarshish, God sought and intervened. John chapter 4, the woman at the well, God sought and intervened and overcame reluctance and drew her to saving faith and changed her heart. That's the story of the gospel. Jesus would later say, you did not seek me. I sought you, Romans 3.10. No one seeks after God. All turn aside and go their own way. That is my natural bent in my rebellious state. And so God comes and does this work of intervention and confronts us. And then what does he do? He saves us by grace. This is the nature of the intervention. It is undeserved. It is, there is no merit applied by the individual. End of verse 5, what does, what, does, what does Paul say here? He says, it is by grace you have been saved, which in context is to be made alive and to be raised to life, to come awake. The work of God. I encourage you this morning, do this. Think back to when your heart woke up. 
Think back to when the love of God overwhelmed your rebellion. Think back to when you came awake. And what you had heard, perhaps for years from friends, all of a sudden it made sense. All of a sudden, you wanted to be part of it. You wanted to experience that grace of God. What had God done? God had overcome your deadness, your unresponsiveness, and had made you awake. It is by His grace, in contrast to human merit, that you have been saved. The New Living Translation says it this way, you can't take any credit for this. It is the gift of God. And is in fact in contrast to what I deserve. I don't deserve a gift. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve God's judgment. But God intervened into our lives. I think the thrust of these verses is something like this. Our salvation has a divine origin. Verse 10, the beginning of it, what does it say? We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. By who? By God. That's the glory of the gospel. And in this context, it it tells us that He he gives us faith. Notice what verse 8 says. He says, it is by grace that you have been saved, completely apart from human merit. What is it? It is the complete opposite of religious pursuits, isn't it? Religions say, merit, merit, merit. Grace says, gift, gift, gift. Unmerited and undeserved favor that pours out and that brings an amazing change. Verse 8 goes on to say that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. In the New International, they appropriately put dashes. Okay? It is by grace you have been saved. This faith is not from yourself. It is a gift from God, not of works, so that no one can what? Boast. Folks, if the result of your salvation is that you boast about a decision that you make, you don't understand the gospel. It's not to say you haven't truly trusted Christ, but I guarantee you this, the more you understand how deeply depraved and dead you are in trespasses and sin and under the power of the evil one, the more you will begin to appreciate and be amazed at the pursuit of God that comes hard after sinners to draw them in to a relationship with Him. Our salvation has a divine origin. The focus of this text, I believe, is on what God does. Well, then you have to ask yourself this question. What is the motive for God's intervention and saving activity? What draws it out? Verse 4 says, But because of His great love for us. A love that the rest of Scripture goes on to tell us was set on us before the foundation of the world. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich, who is abundant in mercy, has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Let me give you this statement for the sake of clarification. Okay? Faith to believe is a gift from God. But that, that response of faith, this text tells us, in itself, is in fact a gift from God. That gift does not, however, preclude my responsibility to repent and believe. Okay? So God works in our heart. We are obligated before God to give a response of repentance and faith. So when you read through Acts 2 that we did a few months ago, right? They say, brothers, what must we do? They say, repent and believe the gospel. Okay, so the work of God does not preclude human responsibility. 
and the necessity of a faith response to God. Just understand that the faith response to God is not owing to superior intellect that got it when other people didn't. And if they had had a better explanation of it, they would have gotten it and they would have been saved. Okay? It's owing to the grace of God. The response is called for by God. It is the response of obedience. It's the first act of obedience that a Christian offers up to God. Why does God do it? Why does he rescue us from our rebellion? Why does he take us from being under wrath, objects of wrath, end of verse 3, to becoming sons and daughters of God? Why? Does he look down from heaven and say, can't imagine heaven without X, Y, or Z? Is that what he does? Heaven would be incomplete without this person. No, what does it say? It says the motive of God's intervention and the motive of his saving activity is his great, abundant, overflowing love. I believe it's that love that David is talking about in Psalm 23 when he says, my cup overflows. In God's presence, there is fullness of joy at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. What is it? It is the overflowing love of God that comes down on broken sinners and converts their heart and brings them to faith and repentance and trust. Paul can say, God being rich in mercy. Mercy is this. Mercy is the withholding of what a rebel deserves. Okay? It is the withholding of what a rebel deserves. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve. Okay? It's important to clarify those things. Because of his mercy... He saved us. He poured out his love to us in Christ. And then Paul says, in his great love. This brings to mind John 3, 16, doesn't it? God so loved the world. Who's the world? Verses 1 to 3. Rebels, dead in trespasses, bent on a hell-bent life. And God works for them and in them and through them. A glorious rescue that causes us to respond to God with glorious and awesome praise. So the motive of God's saving activity is a love that you and I don't understand. Can we be honest this morning and say that it is a love that we are often guilty of not practicing? A love of rebels. You know, when someone injures me and wounds me, you know what I want to do? I want to pay them back. My initial response to being provoked is not, I love you. It's not. It's not, I'm thankful that Jesus says, love your enemies. Because sometimes I want to, Hurt them. Right? Why would he say love them if you were already inclined to do so? Okay, we have a natural inclination towards rebellion. That's who God loves. And when you experience that kind of love, that overflowing, effervescing love of God that, that overflows the cup, it changes you. And you realize that he came to you in your sin, in your deadness, in your darkness, in your slavery. And he set you free and he changed your heart. You will no longer be religious. You will become awed and stunned. God did this. This is the grace of God. The aim of God's intervention. The motive, love, the aim. It's twofold in this text. I'm going to jump down to verse 10 first and then back up to verse 7. Verse 10 says this. We are God's workmanship. Now, this word can be translated as God's project, God's, I love the one translation, we are God's masterpiece. Okay, what does that mean? It means that God is actively taking your life and shaping it together to become something glorious, something that it could never be, apart from his transforming grace. 
So in the present, God's aim is that we would be created as his workmanship, that he is actively taking initiative, involved in the shaping of our lives. We are created in the context of Jesus. That's where salvation is found. And what Christ has done for us to do good works. God has an aim in your salvation. It's not so that you can have a comfortable life. It's so that you would be so transformed that you cannot sit on your hands and simply say, I am grateful that I am a Christian. It's so that you would be changed and drawn into a new kind of love that becomes active, that takes initiative. Why? Because that's what your father did. He left heaven through Jesus and came down to us to serve us and to deliver us. And what does he do? What you saw me do. Do it. He saved you folks to do good works, not by them. Okay, so that you don't understand the solid emphasis of this text. In verse 8, is for by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift from God. You can't take credit for it, but you are changed. And the aim of that change in the present is that you and I would live in such a way that we become transformational agents in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our church family, in our workplace. That we you can't sit on your hands. You were created for. That's purpose. That's intent. That's aim. And when you're not fulfilling that purpose, here's what you're going to find happens. You will live a disgruntled, dissatisfied, typically critical Christian life. You will become fault-finding because your life doesn't have purpose. And the people around you that have purpose, you will learn to hate. It's just the way it works. You were not created to sit back and enjoy your cushy Christian life. You were transformed by the grace of God to become a servant, to love others, to do good works. When did God ordain them? Before time, so that you would walk in them. When he thought of redeeming you from your rebellion, he thought of redeeming you and transforming you and making you a servant to others. That's the love of God. That's what grace does. Religion will never produce that kind of change. It may produce actions for the sake of benefit. That's not love. That's doing it for what I get out of it, for the satisfaction that I derive from it, for the perceived self-righteousness that I get out of it. It's self-centered. Until it is about the love of God manifestly in this text revealed through Jesus Christ, it is not Christian service. It has to be tied to the gospel. Because it is all not to point to us what nice people it's the point to Christ. That's the, that's the purpose for which we engage. So the aim of God in the present is that we would do good works, active pursuit of a transformed life. But then verse 7 gives you a fascinating picture into eternity. And I, this is the future aim of God. And this is, I think, really the larger aim, the grander scheme. Verse 7 says, that he has, I'll just have to read verse 6 to set this, God raised us up with him. When? At the time of your salvation. Are you raised yet? We buried uh, Tim's aunt on Friday. Sowed a seed in the ground. Oh, is she raised yet? She knew Jesus? Well, the answer is yes and no. The answer is already yes, but not yet. Right? It's true for all of us as Christians. What has God done? God has awakened you to the truth of life for him. He has 
raised you in Christ. He has made you alive. He's given you a heart for things that you didn't want before. You changed. It's how you know you converted, isn't it? It's not because you prayed a prayer that you know you converted. It's because your life is different. That you know that the prayer actually was in response to a gift from God. That it was based upon true repentance that led to transformation. And you, you live different. And look, folks, understand this. You may be living a self-centered life today, but here's, if you know Jesus, it will be a discontented life. It's not the purpose for which you were saved. You were saved to do good works. And it is as you engage in that new life that you will find a, an awesome and amazing joy. So we're raised with Christ. We're made alive. But it, it's already, but it's not yet. It is part of what's coming, but it is not the fullness. Here's what I think. Here's what I believe. If this is glorious, if watching God transform people's hearts and change their lives, if living for Him gives joy, what will the not yet be? Do you see? If today God is giving you a joy that is transforming you because you know that you're in with Him, not because of anything you've done, and you're so changed that you begin to live out of love and serve others and find joy in doing that, what will the not yet be like? Do you see? You're raised with him. You're made alive in him, but you're, but you're not yet. But you are. And we're living what? A new life in Christ. That's, that's the essence of this created in Christ to do good works. Why does God do it? What's the future expression of grace? Verse 7 says this. He does this in order that in the coming ages, he, well, listen to this, in the coming ages, Okay, many translators will translate this, the idea of the word parousia, in the coming of Christ, in the not yet. He, God, might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ. Now you've got to let that settle in. That in the ages to come, this is why He did it, in order that, so that, this is the purpose of your salvation, not to give you a good life. And the major purpose of your salvation is not to make you happy, even though it does. Okay? It was never about us. It was always about Him. Okay? And this, this stretches you. Okay? God is into His own glory because when God is glorified in us, we become satisfied with Him. That's the way John Piper says it. So that in the ages to come, and I'm just going to boil this down to a simple statement, so that in the ages to come, God can point to us. And that should so incredibly humble us and cause us to get a different picture. What is this all about? So that in the ages to come, God can point to you. As what? As a demonstration of His saving grace. What does that make us? Ask us to Jessica yesterday. She got it wrong. Most of you will probably get this wrong. What's God doing? You know what God's doing? God's filling his trophy case. We are trophies of his grace. Now, I said this to Jessica and she says, well, that could be convicting for people. I said, well, good. We'll share it then. Perfect. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Men know a lot about trophies. I don't find, in my observation, that women are nearly as addicted to trophies as men are. Personal opinion. 
A trophy is this. It is anything serving as a token or evidence of victory, valor, skill, and accomplishment. Okay, anything serving as a token or evidence of victory, valor, skill, and accomplishment. Men love trophies. Okay, Tim Matthews has a deer preserve on his property. You know why Tim Matthews has that? Because men love trophies. And men will pay upwards of what, Tim, for the biggest one? Seven, eight thousand dollars to get what? Bragging rights. And they're going to pay a whole lot of money to get it taxidermied, if that's even a word. They're going to hang it on the wall. And what is it? It is a testimony to what I can do. That's what it is. Okay? Do I do that? Yes. I do. I thought about that. I said, Jesse, yeah, that is convicting. Okay? I like to work in my yard. Okay? In my downtime, you want to know what I'm doing? I'm probably pulling a weed out, planting a plant, building something. That's what I do. And when I finish something, you know what I do? I, my friends come to my house. You know, I take them in the garage and I show them. If I've never showed you any... I don't know. I was going to say maybe you're not my friend, but that's not true. <laughs> that's harsh, actually. Okay? Hey, you know, there's people that are close to you, and you say, what I, it's, well, look what I did. That's what it is. It's bragging rights. Okay? Men drive around in cars. Men marry women, because what do they want? They want a trophy. They want bragging rights. That's human nature. God wants bragging rights. I thought of the movie Beauty and the Beast guest on the despicable character that is a lot like me he wanted a wife for a trophy he wanted an animal for a trophy everything in his life was about trophies and I looked at that and I said isn't it amazing that we would take the gospel of grace and make it about us when it is really about him so that in the ages to come God might demonstrate in his trophy case the power of His grace. Folks, that's why He chose the nation of Israel. Why? They were rebels, hardcore, undeserving of love. God says, I didn't choose you because you would be good. I chose you because you were rebellious. I chose you so that when I did something amazing through you, people would say, who would have ever thought that that could happen? That's the way it is. That's God. So when you look in the mirror, you are God's workmanship. You are his trophy. You are his masterpiece. You are what he's working on. And he wants you to go out and function in the present as a picture of what you will be in the already, be the not yet. Do you see? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God ordained beforehand that we would walk in them so that we would live for the honor of what God can do. The principles that arise out of this text are something like this. God is pledged to and able to finish what he has started in your life. Verse 5 says, it is by grace that you have been saved. Tense in the Greek is this, perfect tense. Something that is accomplished in the past that has abiding results. Does that encourage you? Man, when I fall down, you know, it's like, God, I am such a waste of your time. By grace, you have been already saved. What he started, he can finish. 
Notice what it says in the earlier verses. You have already been seated with him in the heavenlies. Excuse me? I'm not sitting in the heavenlies. I'm here. I'm here in this broken world. What does God say? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yes, you already are that. But you are not yet what you will be. And what does he say? If you've trusted him, if if you've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, the cleanser of your sin, and been born from above, which is what this terminology made alive is, being born again, raised up. That's the born again terminology. If you've experienced that, you are already in God's eye, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And believe me, you don't want to be there without Jesus. You don't want to be there in your own righteousness. There are parables that talk about that, aren't there? The man that comes into the wedding feast doesn't have the proper attire. He didn't get the memo. He's kicked out. Okay? We come in Christ. So that there's no boasting. It's not that when I get to heaven, Nicholas Kahn's going to say, I'm here because I did this. I was nice to PT at youth group. I was respectful. Not, I listened during lesson. That's a fact, Daryl. Okay. No, what is it? no, we're not going to say, I'm here because I did this, and he's here because he did this. Marie, did I astonish you? Marie, I did. Okay, sorry. Okay, we're, we're not going to be comparing. We're not going to be counting stripes. Nor should we count them now. Okay, you are what you are by the grace, by the undeserved favor, lavish love of God. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7. It talks about the love that God gave us. You know what it says? It says he lavished this love on us. He did to us what I like to do to cakes with icing. Okay? Just pour it on. That's what God did. His love in abundance. A smothering love that leaves you amazed. Stunned. Religion will never do that. Why? Because it's me. It's a little bit of Gaston. It's a tribute to what I've done. God forbid. God's plan is to finish what he starts. And Paul goes on to say in the book of Ephesians that he is certainly able to finish what he has started. I read for you Ephesians 1. And I'm just going to read these because I think you ought to know that God is able to, what he started in you, he can do it. And please understand this. You can. You can. So if you came here this morning struggling, enslaved, addicted, you can. But listen to this. I pray also, Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. By who? By God. Not that you would get it, but that God would open your eyes. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in you, the saints, and his incomparably great power for us. That is for the advantage of those in the Greek, of those who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age to come, the already, but in the not yet. Okay, God has already seated you there. That is the end of despair for believers. That is the end of discouragement and frustration and failure. He has already done this. He is able to finish in your life what he started. 3, 14 to 21. For this reason, I kneel. Paul says, I fall before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth gets its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with dunamis, with an innate latent power. 
and I love this, through His Spirit in your inner being so that Jesus may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together. And I love this, with all the saints. Paul didn't want anyone left behind that you would have power with all the saints to grasp, to get, to comprehend, to assess. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge, it blows your mind that you may be filled to all the fullness of the measure of God now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we would ask or think according to His power that has worked within us. To Him be glory. Do you see the connection? Through God's power working in your life, He gets glory. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus who one day will be merged together and seated in the heavenlies. Join heirs with Christ. God will finish what He has started in your life. He is pledged to that end. And I hope that truth will encourage you. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, there's a spirit now at work in you, the spirit of Satan. Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13 says, it is God who is at work in you. I love that. The one that used to work in you prior to Jesus was the evil one who led you to debauchery, slavery, and death. Now, Philippians 2 says, God is at work And folks, look, if God's at work in you, victory is certain. If it's you at work in you, failure is sure. Failure is sure. God is pledged to and able to finish what He has started. Change always follows our response to God's work of saving grace. When God intervenes and true change comes, or and true conversion takes place, there is always change. Now, can I please understand what I'm saying? Okay, if you believe that you've trusted Christ, but you have never experienced transformation and freedom... You have no reason to be assured of your conversion because you prayed a prayer. Okay? True change will always follow true conversion. We are His workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. They will always be. That's why Jesus said this. By their fruits, you will know them. You will. And by your fruits, you will know if you are in Christ. Do you love Him? Have you experienced some level of, degree of, though imperfect, transformation? Paul says God did this so that, verse 10, we would walk in them. The idea of walk literally means that we would live in them. The book of Ephesians, or the book of Galatians, talks about walking in the Spirit so that you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. God created you anew and put you in the context of living to walk in newness of life, to be changed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, one of my favorite verses about transformation. It says, if any man is in Christ, he has become a new creation. Do you see the same word here? Where is workmanship created in Christ? That's conversion. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Okay, do you know that? And if you do, who gets the credit for it? God has set it up so that it can only be attributed to the amazing grace of God in Jesus. It also means this, and this is the final thought, that our sin and struggles do not limit the power and grace of God. You see, with grace of such an amazing stature, there's two problems, aren't there? Basically, two kinds of people in the world. There are people that are 
too good to need a major redemption, a major intervention. Do you understand what I mean? I mean, if, if that's what grace is about, transformation, rescued from, from radical sin and, and, and deep darkness in the heart and deadness, I don't need that. And so grace is resisted. What's fascinating to me is that those people are usually happy for those who need it and get it. But they don't need it. And then there are people who are too bad to receive grace. Who think that their life is too messed up, too flawed, too broken for God to do anything about it. Okay? Both are wrong. Both are wrong. Powson, in his book, Speaking God's Truth, says this. He says, grace woos and, com- and, com- and comforts us when we think we are too far gone to be rescued. How could you, he asked, be too bad to receive what is for the bad? Do you see? Verses 1 through 3 about what? They're about how bad we are. How could you be too bad to receive what is for the bad? If you beat yourself up and you think you can't approach the throne of grace, you can't get the help that God offers, you don't understand grace. You don't understand the objects of His love from verses 1 to 3. Maybe you're tempted to give up, thinking something like this, God could not possibly love or help me. My failures are too frequent and too deep. My sin is too incurable. I'm stuck. I'll never change. Does your badness exceed God's diagnosis in verses 2, 1 to 3? No one is too far gone. Do you believe this? Perhaps you're here this morning as a wife and you have contempt for your husband. Perhaps as a husband and you've written off your wife as a hopeless case, a parent who frets and sees at their children, perhaps a single adult whose life is stained by disgruntlement because you feel shafted by life, perhaps a teen who feels justified in feeding on dark thoughts. I don't know what your issue may be this morning. I don't know what your struggle is, but I know this. I know God can deliver from the deepest darkness and from the depths of despair and from the deepest slavery. Grace wakes you to your need for grace. You need it in your heart. You know it. The grace of God, as it flows into your life, will awaken your need to and for grace. Have you seen yourself in need? of God's gracious intervention? Have you seen yourself deserving of God's wrath? If you have, and if you have turned to Him in repentance and faith, you've experienced a transformation. Your life is different. If you haven't, I would encourage you today, fly to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Fall into the amazing love of God that is greater far than any words that any preacher could ever speak. Confess that Jesus Christ came to bear the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. This morning, do you sense His pursuit? Do you feel faith rising as a gift from God? If you do, I encourage you, respond. And if you know Him, I would encourage you this morning to express to God deep gratitude, deep joy, deep thankfulness. Because today you are doing better than you deserve. And someone says to you tomorrow, hey, how you doing? Your response in light of God's grace should always be, as C.J. Mahaney says, better than I deserve. And here's what you'll find. 
if you share that with people, you will get the most humorous responses from people that know you. Because most people, since you're a churchgoer, they see you as pretty good. And they think you're in because you merit and deserve it. But you know the truth about yourself. Dead in trespasses and sins, under the sway of the evil one, redeemed by lavish love and amazing grace, and very grateful as a result for every day that you get to live. Even if you started out falling down the steps, getting bruised and battered. Okay, even if you start like that, guess what? When I got down, I was in screaming pain. The truth is this. I did not get what I deserved. Because what I deserve is the wrath of God. Any pain that you experience in this life pales in comparison to what the Savior bore for you. Because of His great love. And throughout eternity, He wants to put you in His trophy case. It's a functional trophy case. It's not a dusty trophy case. It's functional. It's transformational. It glorifies God. And it puts us in our proper place. Created by God to love Him and to do good works that He ordained beforehand that we should walk and live in them. May God help us. May God help us. The last question I ask you this morning is this. In light of this rescuing and redeeming grace, as you go from this place today, who does God want you to rescue? Who does He want you to take this story of amazing grace to? Who does He want to save through your words? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Who does He want to change? Who does He want to challenge? Who does He want to transform? Who are you talking to? Who are you seeking an opportunity with to make this good news known? This great truth that encourages the heart of every believer. God never stops doing what He started. He's going to finish it for His glory. Heaven is my home. I am seated with Him in the heavenlies already in Christ. But not yet. Who does God want you to reach with His transforming, glorious, and wonderful grace? God, thank You for Your Word this morning.